Chief Justice, may it please the court. I'm Giancarlo Conoparo. I'm Zach Smith. And welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. Welcome to another episode of SCOTUS 101. Zach, how are things looking at the court this week? They're looking pretty good, GC. It was a relatively light week. We only had one opinion. We had a couple of noteworthy orders, and we had no oral arguments. And in fact, the court's next conference uh, to consider cases isn't scheduled until April 16th. Well, let's jump right into what we do have. In uh, Supreme Court-related news, Justice Breyer made news uh, this week because he gave a speech at Harvard where he said that the idea of court packing, that is expanding the number of justices on the court, was not a good idea because it would increase the perception that the court was motivated not by law but by politics, which would erode public trust. He went on to say that, and I quote, if the public sees judges as politicians in robes, its confidence in the courts and in the rule of law itself can only diminish, diminishing the court's power, including its power to act as a check on other branches. Kind of makes you think, maybe judges, therefore, ought to strive towards objectivity in their decision making. Maybe, say, by removing their personal preferences from the process (laughs) and limiting themselves to faithfully interpreting and applying the text of laws in the Constitution? I don't know. Wild idea. I don't know where you get these crazy ideas from, GC. <laughs> who who would think such a thing? <laughs> Not Justice Breyer, ironically. Well, I don't always agree with Justice Breyer, but uh, I think he was spot on with his speech, uh, yeah. in this aspect of it at least, uh, Correct. this week. All right, moving on to orders. First up, we have Small v. Memphis Light, Gas, and Water. Uh, This was a denial of certiorari, and Justice Gorsuch dissented, which Justice Alito joined. By way of background, Title VII prohibits employers from discriminating against an individual, quote, because of such individual's religion, and it requires employers to grant an employee's religious accommodation request unless doing so would impose an undue hardship on the employer. Now, in a 1977 opinion, Transworld Airlines, Inc. v. Hardison, The Supreme Court said that an employer suffers an undue hardship where granting the employee's accommodation would require more than a de minimis cost. In this case, the court was being asked to revisit that de minimis cost standard. Justice Gorsuch, in his dissent from denial, said that the court's Transworld Airlines decision, quote, dramatically revised, really undid, Title VII's undue hardship test. He said that the de minimis cost test does not appear in the statute and that the court announced that standard in a single sentence with little explanation or supporting analysis. Neither party before the court had even argued for the rule, which was a point Justice Alito had previously raised when he dissented from the denial of certiorari in another Title VII case last year, the case of Patterson v. Walgreen Company. Gorsuch also pointed out that the undue hardship standard found in other statutes, such as the Americans with Disabilities Act, the Uniform Services Employment and Reemployment Rights Act, and the Affordable Care Act, have all been interpreted so that an employer must provide an accommodation unless doing so would impose, quote, significant difficulty or expense given the employer's financial resources, number of employees, and the nature of its business. 
Gorsuch went on to point out the uneven results that can be caused uh, from these different interpretations of the undue hardship standard found in these different statutes, and he said that the only mistake here is of the court's own making, and it is past time for the court to correct it. Well, that brings us to Justice Thomas's headline-grabbing concurrence this week in Biden versus Knight. The Supreme Court dismissed as moot this case originally brought against President Trump for blocking people on his Twitter account. As you may recall, the Second Circuit said that it was unlawful for Trump to block people from his account because it constituted a public forum, which means that the government can't restrict people from speaking there. The court unanimously held that since Trump was no longer president and since Twitter has now blocked his account, the case was moot. No surprises there. But Justice Thomas sparked a national conversation by filing a concurring opinion stating that while he agreed with the court's decision not to hear the case, he wondered about how or whether old First Amendment doctrines can or should be applied to new digital platforms. Now, depending on where you got your news, this was either, in the words of one pundit, a paranoid Marxist delusion, (laughs) or it was the death knell of big tech. The truthful, sober explanation is that it was neither. Shocking. Shocking. (laughs) (laughs) It was a thought experiment and a call for scholars to start thinking about and writing about these issues. Justices do this pretty often in separate opinions. Justice Gorsuch, for instance, is very well known for this. If you actually read the opinion, and I encourage you to, it's short and it's accessible, you'll see a tentative opinion weighing legal arguments and acknowledging the limits of current jurisprudence. What it boils down to is this. Justice Thomas says that existing First Amendment doctrines are not well suited to digital forums where large companies have significant control over speech. But, he says, cases implicating these doctrines in the context of online speech are coming. See, for instance, this suit against President Trump. And we need to start thinking about them, bearing in mind that the the ultimate goal should be, quote, ensuring that speech is not smothered. Now, he seems to reject outright the idea that social media companies violate the First Amendment by censoring users. He says that it was proper for the court to reject a case that presented that very issue. But in doing so, he turns to another area where legal doctrine has developed to address significant private power over public rights, so-called common carriers. These are things like trains and communication services. Although they are private, the law has long forbidden them from discriminating against anyone in providing their services. Thomas goes through the various legal considerations and seems to lean tentatively towards concluding that digital platforms may be common carriers, at least if they have sufficient market power, but he acknowledges that there are legal and factual uncertainties and so he doesn't reach a definitive answer. The one thing we can say for sure is that the next few volumes of law reviews will be filled with papers on this subject. Next up, we have the case of Brown v. Davenport. This is a case where the court granted certiorari, and it focuses on a technical but vitally important standard in federal habeas cases. Essentially, the court is being asked to decide the appropriate standard that courts should apply in federal habeas cases when deciding whether or not a constitutional error for a criminal defendant is harmless. The defendant in this case was shackled during his trial, which the state of Michigan now agrees was error, but contends nonetheless that it was harmless error. A panel of the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals disagreed and ordered the state to retry this defendant for his crime that he committed nearly 14 years ago. The state of Michigan petitioned the Supreme Court for review, which it of course granted. 
We had one opinion this week in Google versus Oracle. In a 6-2 decision written by Justice Breyer, the court sided with Google in its long-running copyright fight over its unauthorized use of some of Oracle's programming code. To understand this case, you have to understand what Oracle's application programming interface is. Super technical, but I think we can break it down. So the API, as it's called, is pre-written lines of computer code that are used to implement certain functions within a program. You can think of the API as a user interface that tells a programmer where to find a particular piece of code that performs the function he or she wants. The court calls the API declaring code, and the code that actually performs the desired function in a computer program is called implementing code. What Google did was it took the declaring code and then in its own software programs paired it with its own implementing code. So there's no debate that Google did not have Oracle's permission to take these declaring codes. The only question is whether it was quote-unquote fair use. That's a copyright rule that excuses a copyright violation under certain circumstances. The court held that it was fair use because Google made what's called transformative use of the declaring code by using it to develop new computer programs in markets that Oracle was not involved in. The majority concluded that restricting Google's use of the declaring code would essentially shut down the new markets that Google created, which would harm consumers. Justice Thomas, joined by Justice Alito, dissented on the grounds that the law does not permit a distinction between declaring and implementing code and that the court misapplied the fair use doctrine. Thomas concluded that the Copyright Act covers both declaring and implementing computer code when it defines computer code and that Google's use of the API harmed Oracle's potential markets and was predominantly commercial rather than transformative use. Finally, Justice Thomas noted that Google copied a substantial portion of Oracle's API. Justice Barrett did not participate in that case. I know this was certainly a high-stakes case with potentially billions of dollars on the lines, so it was a, a very interesting case to, to hear argued and now to see the results come out in this opinion. Well, that brings us to this week's interview, and we have a subject matter expert on the line to talk about the Second Amendment. You might be familiar with our Second Amendment expert. We are joined today by a familiar voice, Amy Swearer. Back by popular demand. Amy, is, uh, it is a delight to have you back. Amy has been extraordinarily busy these days being one of the nation's foremost scholars on the Second Amendment. She joins us after recently testifying before the Senate, which was her second time testifying before Congress. Amy, welcome to the hot seat. The hot seat, huh? Is that's this, this that's right. Like a, who wants to be a millionaire? Second Amendment SCOTUS edition. <laughs> that's right. Well, now that you're joining us as a subject matter expert, uh, you know, all gloves, the gloves come off. Yeah, it's, it's weird to be on this side of the interview, uh, but it is good <laughs> to be back. So thank you for having me. Oh, absolutely. So today we're going to talk about the Second Amendment and the Supreme Court. The reason for our Second Amendment discussion is a recent case out of the Ninth Circuit that may very well find its way to the Supreme Court. But before we get into the details of that case, Amy, can you set the stage for us by giving us an overview of the Supreme Court's treatment or non-treatment of the Second Amendment? <laughs> well, I, it is mostly non-treatment of the Second Amendment. In fact, we don't really get a foundational Second Amendment case until 2008 uh, with District of Columbia v. Heller. 
Uh, now, of course, I, I think there are some reasons it takes the court, you know, whatever, two, 260 years or so to, to deal squarely with the right to keep and bear arms. Um, you know, you've got a general lack of significant federal gun control uh, up until the mid 20th century, um, you know, fairly gradual development of the incorporation doctrine and, and a lot of other things going on. Um, you know, you, you do get a couple of cases between ratification and 2008 and Heller that still give us some important insights uh, into the Second Amendment. Uh, so you have Cruikshank, for example, in, in 1876, uh, talks about the right to keep and bear arms as uh, something that is not created by the Second Amendment. It, it doesn't come into being with those words. Um, it, it's a pre-existing right that the amendment simply recognizes and, and protects within our framework of government. Um, you have Miller in, in 1939. That often gets misconstrued, uh, but basically just bears on the types of firearms protected under the Second Amendment. Um, but it's, it's, it's pretty limited in scope. You have Staples in 1994. Um, Staples has nothing at all to do with the Second Amendment. It's, it's a mens rea case. Uh, but in the course of it, you get this interesting component where basically everyone agrees uh, that a semi-automatic rifle is commonly owned and presumably not intended for unlawful use. Um, so you do get these little sort of snapshots into just sort of the, the history of the Second Amendment with some of these cases. And, and uh, you don't really get much more than that until 2008. Uh, where with this very limited judicial record, we get uh, Heller in 2008 and um, McDonald v. City of Chicago in 2010. Uh, and in both cases, you know, the, the court sets a foundational framework. Um, so both cases deal with uh, bans on the possession of operable handguns inside the home. Um, so it's, you know, pretty narrow issue, but but those bans are struck down as unconstitutional, um, and then taken together, sort of as a whole, what these cases do is affirm that the right to keep and bear arms is individual in nature. So it settles this debate over, is it a militia-centric right? Is it, does it belong to the individual, regardless of you know, whether they're actively serving in a militia? Um, so it settles that. And then it also you know, goes into this idea of the Second Amendment, the right to keep and bear arms being fundamental to our scheme of ordered liberty. McDonald, in particular, um, it makes it applicable to the states through the 14th Amendment. It, it gets incorporated just like uh, all the other fundamental rights in, in the Bill of Rights. Um, so the court in those two cases clearly answered some, some important foundational questions about the Second Amendment, but it didn't do much more than that. Um, and in fact, the court hasn't done much more than that in the last 10 years, uh, I guess, 12, 11, 11, a decade or so since McDonald. Um, so there are a lot of aspects of the Second Amendment framework that are lacking, um, including basic directions for lower courts, things like what standard of scrutiny do we apply to Second Amendment cases other than you know, not rational basis? So there, there's still a lot of unanswered questions. Turning to the Ninth Circuit opinion, that case is called Young versus Hawaii. Uh, walk us through that, starting with what was the law at issue in that case? Sure. So Young, uh, from just a broad level, dealt with the question of whether ordinary law-abiding Americans have a Second Amendment right to openly carry a handgun in public for general self-defense. 
Um, so let's talk about the legal background here. Hawaii is one of, um, if not the most restrictive carry uh, frameworks in the nation, right up there with New York City. It uses a sufficient need or good cause framework for carry permits. And so that basically means the government has the discretion to issue or not issue carry permits, depending entirely uh, upon some vague notion of whether it thinks the applicant can prove a specific heightened need beyond you know, th- this general fear of becoming a crime victim. So in other words, you don't get a permit to carry in public just because you look outside and say, well, crime might happen to me outside the home. You have to show a specific need for it. So basically what what we're dealing with under these sorts of frameworks, and especially in Hawaii, is that most applications to carry in public from just your typical ordinary civilian uh, get denied. And uh, Hawaii actually takes it further than most jurisdictions because in practice, there's not a single true civilian who has ever been granted a carry permit of any kind in Hawaii. Um, now, Now here's where I circle back and explain why I say a permit of any kind. Um, So Hawaii technically has two types of permits. The first is a permit for concealed carry. Um, It basically doesn't even exist. Uh, So the state has on the books a a way to uh, get a concealed carry permit, but in the entire recorded history of the state, uh, there's something like four concealed carry permits that have been granted. Um, not for last year, for total, ever. You know, that would seem to be a great concealed carry permit challenge, um, but that's actually not what the case was about. So this was about Hawaii's open carry permit statutes. Um, and so Young applied for an open carry permit, which on its face, uh, you know, at least seemed plausible that that he might get it. Um, so this is something that uh, is done at a very county level. Um, the, the county has a lot of discretion. Um, there's no like real true definition of what you have to show. Um, but again, in practice, it's actually more complicated than that. Um, so Hawaii, and specifically this county that Young lives in, had never issued an open carry permit to anyone who wasn't also a licensed security guard. Um, so, so in effect, and so Young, of course, you know, applies, he gets denied several times. Um, and so in effect, what Hawaii has done uh, in practice is say, you do not have a right to conceal carry or open carry, and you can only open carry if you are a licensed security guard, not if you're just an ordinary citizen. So that's what's at issue here is this idea of the right to open carry. So tell me about the Ninth Circuit's opinion in Young. The short version is that the majority, as you suggested, uh, held that there's no Second Amendment right to open carry a handgun in public. It's a a long opinion. I I think it's something like 123 pages. Um, But just some points of of highlight. You know, there's most of the opinion is the same sort of arguments that you see come up in, in the other circuits that have upheld these sorts of permitting restrictions, basically taking some dicta and Heller and McDonald um, about, you know, the, the right not being unlimited, about presumptively lawful uh, restrictions on carry in, in certain um, what Heller and McDonald call sensitive places, taking that and then using it to say, 
well, that means that actually you really don't have a right to bear arms in public. Um, you know, just stretching it far beyond its its means. Um, and I think that that has really been one of the problems uh, because the Supreme Court has not, uh, you know, slapped down some of these more uh, absurd interpretations of Heller and McDonald. We keep seeing this. Um, so you see some of those same themes here. Um, you see a lot of uh, tortured historical analysis. Um, I, I'd be on the lookout for uh, a, an upcoming law review article by, by David Kopel on, um, you know, just how tortured some of this historical analysis is. Um, you see the same thing with the, the legal history, um, where, I mean, you, you basically have the court ripping quotes or ripping laws out of their context to make it seem like it's it's doing the exact opposite thing in, in history. And I think one of the, the key examples of this um, is the majority's reliance on what are known as surety laws. Um, so there's uh, this his, basically the historical precursor to restraining orders in a sense. Um, so if someone raised a well-founded complaint that another person posed you know, some sort of threat of violence or a breach of the peace, that accused person could be made to assure his peaceable nature. Um, often it was just a small finer fee, but you know sometimes he could be prohibited from carrying weapons in public. Now there was also this longstanding exception to the surety uh, that if you know that the person under surety had a specialized need for self-defense, he could still carry weapons, but the burden was on him to prove he fit that exemption. Um, but note the problem here. Only people placed under surety in the first place needed to rely on that specialized need exemption. And so it's like having a restraining order against a person with a caveat that they can contact you if they you know, show a specific need to do so, but then using that as proof that everyone else in your life has to show a specific need before being able to legally contact you. It's using the exception to the exception instead of focusing on broadly the fact that most people weren't under surety. Um, so you just see a lot of that type of mental gymnastics that the Ninth Circuit goes through. And then I think one other point worth addressing, because this, this is something that the, the dissenting judges um, really harp on it at certain points too, is that the Ninth Circuit actually at one point says, and I'm, I'm quoting here um, from the majority, the Second Amendment did not contradict the fundamental principle that the government assumes primary responsibility for defending persons who enter our public spaces. Um, that essentially one of the, the, the policy interests they use here is that, well, the, the, the government has the primary role of protecting people in, in public. Um, so they essentially take the premise that because the state's general police power to protect its citizens takes precedence over you know, the, the very limited enumerated powers exercised by the federal government, um, that somehow this excludes the citizens' underlying fundamental right to self-defense in public. Again, it's you know 123 pages if you want to read it, but it's it's 123 pages of very tortured mental gymnastics. What are your predictions for this case making it to the Supreme Court? So it's, I mean, you know as well as I do, Giancarlo, that it is impossible to say uh, when the court will take up any case, much less the Second Amendment case of magnitude. I mean, it's been 13 years since Heller, 11 since McDonald. Uh, it's not like this is the first time a lower court has completely undermined Heller to the point of rendering it toothless. Um, you know, so the, the court has had plenty of opportunities uh, like this that they, it hasn't taken up. So history doesn't bode well. 
Um, but I think on the other hand, you know, there's, as we've noted on the show, there's been changing dynamics in the court and that does bode well. Um, I think the issue of public carry has a very good chance of being uh, sort of the first building block off of Heller's foundation. Um, so public carry and then, you know, questions of what types of firearms are protected. Um, so, you know, this issue will probably be next as for whether it will be from this particular case, from Young v. Hawaii, um, you know, I, I think honestly that the timing may be off. I'm sorry, I've, I, I don't doubt that Young will file a cert petition um, and, you know, Lord knows he should, um, but who knows how long that will take, you know, how long it'll hang around before it gets scheduled for conference. Um, and at the same time, you have another case raising this same issue that I think uh, will be far more likely to be granted first um, just because of timing. That's actually our old friend, New York State Rifle and Pistol. Take two. Is it back? Yes, it is. So if you recall, the court actually took up that case last term um, on just the very narrow issue of New York City's transportation laws. And it ended up uh, basically getting mooted because New York panicked and and rewrote the law. Um, But now it's back, uh, relisted, and this time with a you know, simpler, broader, and, and frankly, much more foundational question. You know, is there a right for ordinary law-abiding citizens to carry a handgun in public for self-defense? It's a very clean question. It appears to be a very clean vehicle. Um, you know, if, if you're a normal, ordinary citizen in, in New York City, you have approximately 0% chance of being granted a carry permit. Um, I mean, you have a rough chance of, of getting a license to own a handgun, period, in New York City. Um, but carry permits, you're probably not getting it. Um, you know, th- there's no open carry permitted in New York City. The lead counsel in the case is Paul Clement, you know, former solicitor general, current stalwart of public interest appellate law. Um, you know, so it, it seems to be a good case that I think just timing wise, um, you know, I, I just couldn't envision a scenario where the courts wouldn't take up uh, New York State rifle and pistol take two, you know, where it would sort of punt on that and then say, but actually we, we want Hawaii. But I, all that to say, the issue will come up. So let's say hypothetically the court takes up New York pistol. How do you see that case being decided? <laughs> um, well, if there's anything that lower courts have taught us in the last decade, it's that you know, Heller can be used to support literally any piece of gun control legislation, <laughs> no matter how restrictive, as long as you just sort of squint your eyes, tilt your head and, and ignore inconvenient text history and tradition. Um, you know, so that being said, I, I think given what we know about at least five of the justices on the courts um, and both things that they have written on the Second Amendment, the, the way that they have analyzed it, uh, the way that they have been faithful to Heller and McDonald, um, you know, looking at looking very seriously at the text, history, and tradition. Um, I, I don't think there is a way. Again, if you, if you faithfully take their interpretations of Heller and McDonald and apply it to the case, I, I don't think there's any way, um, regardless of whatever standard they use, that that they would uphold, um, you know, some sort of licensing restriction like you see in, in New York City or in Hawaii um, that essentially strips law-abiding ordinary citizens of the right to carry in, in public. Now, I don't think they'll go so far as to, you know, strike down 
every single concealed carry permitting um, framework that has ever existed, um, you know, I I would anticipate that afterwards, you know, all all of these jurisdictions would do basically what what the District of Columbia did um, in, in 2017 after rent where they lost at the, the circuit court level, you know, where it's, yeah, it'll take you several hundreds of dollars and, you know, maybe a year to get your permit. But if you jump through the hoops, you can do it. Um, but I, I think at the end of the day, with one of these vehicles, with a jurisdiction that has essentially shut down the right to bear arms in public for the majority of, of law-abiding Americans, um, I don't see that being upheld by this particular court, given Heller and McDonald. What would you say is the correct resolution of that case? Uh, well, well, so again, you know, assuming it's um, whether it's uh, Young or, or whether it's the, the New York case, I, I think the correct resolution is quite clearly to strike down a framework that denies ordinary law-abiding citizens any right whatsoever to bear arms in public. Um, you know, whatever case this eventually is, I, I think the court has to uh, affirm that there is a right to carry in public. Um, you know, my guess is they, they would say, and I would probably say as well, that right's not unlimited. Um, you know, you don't have to have every state go to constitutional carry um, where it's completely unregulated at any capacity. You know, and I, I think given the facts of the case, the resolution will be pretty fairly limited to, and, and properly so, to, you know, there, there's a right to carry in public. We can flesh out the details of, you know, overly restrictive burdens on the right later. Um, but I, I think that at its core is the correct resolution, you know, to, to reaffirm that when the text says there is a right to keep and bear arms, that what it actually means is the right is to keep and bear arms. That is, in my mind, the, the only correct resolution. Well, Amy, thank you so much for coming back and uh, sharing your expertise with us. I do have one fa- final question for you since you're oh, in the hot yes. seat. You, get, oh, you yeah. get our question, Amy. If you could chat with any Supreme Court justice, living or dead, who would it be and what would you talk about? You know, if I, if I didn't know that we've often allowed guests to, to cheat a bit on this question, I, I wouldn't cheat, but I, I'm going to cheat. Um, so it's several justices and, and actually <laughs> what I and, and it's several justices living and dead, um, because what I'd actually like to do is to get all of the the women justices together um, who you know, now, unfortunately, you have some that are both living and, and passed away uh, with the notorious RBG. Um, but I, I would love to to honestly just have a ladies night with them, to, to sit down and, and listen and to watch their interactions with each other, um, you know, and, and to learn from them and to to learn how they all learned from, from each other. Um, I, I think that would, you know, in my ideal scenario, um, that would be it, you know, to, to have that ladies night with, with the ladies of the Supreme Court. Wow, it sounds like a great time. Amy, Thank you so much for coming back and joining us. Thank you for having me. I thought this week we could talk about the justices' pre-Supreme Court professions. Uh, What do you think, GC? Are you ready? Uh, Sounds good to me. All right. First up, how many of the current justices served as full-time law professors at some point before they took the bench? Hmm. Okay, let me think. I know... Obviously, Justice Barrett did. Right. Uh, 
Justice Breyer did because his administrative law casebook is a constant companion of mine. Right. <laughs> and uh, Justice Kagan was dean of Harvard. She must have been a professor before that. Yeah, that's exactly right. So there are three, three of the current justices, and you uh, you named them all correctly. Uh, Justice Breyer served as a professor at Harvard. Uh, as you mentioned, Justice Kagan served as a professor and later dean at Harvard. And then, of course, Justice Barrett uh, served as a professor at the University of Notre Dame. Well done. All right, next up, who is the only sitting justice not to have previously served as a judge on a United States Court of Appeals? That would be Justice Kagan. In fact, I don't think she was a judge on any court, in fact. Yeah, that's exactly right. She joined the Supreme Court directly from serving as the U.S. Solicitor General during the Obama administration. Uh, in 1999, after serving as an associate White House counsel, Kagan was nominated by President Clinton to the D.C. Circuit, but the Senate didn't act on her nomination before President George W. Bush was elected, uh, so she was never confirmed to that position. All right, next up, GC, setting aside the Supreme Court, who is the only justice to have sat as a judge on the same court where the justice also clerked earlier in his or her career? Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, so it'd be a lower federal court. Right. I'm, I'm actually surprised. I don't, I don't know the answer, but I'm surprised that there's only one. This, this would strike me intuitively as something that's actually relatively common. No, it, it surprised me as well. Uh, and the answer is Justice Alito. He clerked for Judge Leonard Garth on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Third Circuit. And he, of course, was later nominated by uh, the first President Bush, President George H.W. Bush, uh, for a seat on that same circuit. And, of course, he was confirmed to it uh, before he joined the Supreme Court. Interesting. All right. Which current justices never worked in private practice for a law firm? Well, I know Justice Thomas didn't. Right. I don't think Justice Breyer did. Right. Give me a second. I know Roberts did. I know Barrett did. And I know that Kavanaugh did. You know, I don't, I don't know about the rest. Well, two out of three isn't too shabby at all. The third one was Justice Alito. So it was Justices mm. Thomas, Breyer, and Alito. All three held a variety of governmental positions before they took the bench. Uh, Justice Thomas did work for a private company for a short period of time, uh, but not a law firm. And Justice Breyer uh, also served, in, obviously, in a variety of academic roles uh, in addition to his government work as well. All right, GC, last up for today, who is the only sitting justice to have previously served as a trial court judge? That's Justice Sotomayor. And I have to plug my own, you know, strongly held opinions on this point. I think that more <laughs> Supreme Court justices should have been trial court judges. Yeah, absolutely. So you're absolutely right. It was Justice Sotomayor. Uh, she served as a district court judge on the U.S. District Court for the Southern District of New York from 1992 to 1998. And of course, she later served as a circuit court judge on the Second Circuit from 98 to 2009 when she was nominated by President Obama and confirmed to the Supreme Court. And, you know, speaking of that, I always think back to the story of uh, Justice Rehnquist, who 
to get experience as a trial court judge set in the, I believe, in the Eastern District of Virginia. And it was a a very interesting experience for him, uh, from what I understand. That's interesting. I don't know this story. You'll have to uh, maybe um, make this uh, a a new trivia question on a future episode. Uh, Yeah, we will for sure. I I'm not sure, but I think he may have been reversed in some of his rulings. <laughs> so Interesting. Well, that's it for today. Uh, thank you to everyone for listening to SCOTUS 101. Please be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen. And as always, we'd appreciate if you left us a five-star rating. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at SCOTUS101 and email us at SCOTUS101 at heritage.org with your questions, comments, or ideas for future shows. Case is submitted. You've been listening to SCOTUS101, brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. Executive produced by Giancarlo Canaparo and Zach Smith. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. For more information, visit heritage.org.